All right, let's uh, from the top. Take two. From the top. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. It's Uncle Paul's. We just did our intro, and uh, I forgot to press record. So we, we're all like, we've settled over. We're already. pretending this is the first time. Yeah, we're pretending yeah, this right. is the first time. Anyways, yeah, we were yeah, just yeah. mocking Andre, and we were just saying, like, pastors should work more, and he doesn't do enough of it. And, you know, that's what I said, blah, 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 yakety smackety. <laughs> uh, and we have a special guest today, Jeff Taylor. Hi, Jeff. Good to see you. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back. <laughs> Welcome back. Actually, actually, this is a very second. long morning for Jeff. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome back for the first time. <laughs> it's the second time on the show, I should say. Um, but but it's it's like super. What is it? Four o'clock in the morning. Is that right? Yeah, it's four o'clock in the morning. So um, I mean, I hope everyone just really appreciates that up front. You know, <laughs> just, like, you've got to add some some uh, you know points to the to whatever we're going to talk about. If you're not persuaded yeah. by the argument, then just add some of those uh, uh, points on because that's that's uh, quite profound. I don't think I've ever been awake that time in my whole life. Um, so <laughs> not good. on purpose, that's for sure. Yeah. 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 Although, actually, with twins, we've just had twins recently and uh <laughs> i don't even know what i'm problem. talking about it the, I, I must have been awake at that time but not yeah not not uh willingly not willingly at all and always with a desire to go back to bed immediately um so we just mentioned jeff's website as well i don't want to forget that because it is such a great website uh, it, great uh website. If, if you don't mind jeff i'll just tell them it's a second hyphen remember hyphen. the line hyphen always got to have the hyphen second hyphen adam Dot com and just a whole bunch of resources there just great articles that jeff has written have you written them all jeff was that all from you yes okay great well, there we go <clears throat> and um uh you know definitely recommend um you know i've been telling people at, at our church about it it's just just so good just uh, get in there and you know you can kind of choose your theme and run with it and it's all from a client perspective and just trustworthy stuff and you know couldn't re recommend it highly enough so go check that out but we want to talk about jeff's book uh which were which uh, i mentioned uh, last time we recorded, whenever that was, um, more than heaven, uh, tantalizing uh, topic there, a biblical theological argument for a federal view of glorification. And yes, we are talking about rewards. Are there rewards in heaven? What's the deal with rewards? That's what we want to come back to. Um, and then I just asked Jeff previously to tell us a little bit about himself and he started doing that. And then I interrupted him and told him we, we had recorded none of it. So Jeff, <laughs> wouldn't mind. We know this awesome beginning top. to your story, but you know, they don't. So you got to tell us again. Sure. I grew up in Dallas, Texas and uh, First Baptist Church, Dallas, where W.A. Criswell was pastor and preacher. And uh, the Lord just really blessed me during those early years. Uh, Dr. Criswell was, he was actually a Calvinist. A lot of people don't believe that, uh, don't know that. And, wow. uh, hmm. but, um, he believed in the authority of scripture and when he preached, he preached, um, yeah, not in a heavy handed way, but powerfully bringing glory to the Lord Jesus. Yeah. And, um, Sunday night services, um, Dr. Criswell brought you as close to heaven as you can imagine being in wow. terms of amazing, amazing times. So anyway, however, in the, uh, toward the latter part of my high school years, through the influence of some Sunday school teachers and some Dallas theological students, 
um, I found my way to S. Lewis Johnson's Believer's Chapel. Wow. And uh, that's from one was, uh, dispensational heavyweight to another dispensational. Heavyweight. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> and, amazing. And I had the charts. I had the charts in the Rari Study Bible, and uh, wow, amazing. <laughs> and they were both yeah. they were both Calvinists as well. So that's and they were that's, both that's Calvinists. Something. Yeah. I yeah. even snuck into a class by Walvard one day with one of uh, my friends who was at Dallas Seminary and heard Walvard rant and rave against oh. those millennials. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, some memorable times. Also, um, uh, shortly after that, when I went off to Baylor to uh, study, I was influenced by Reformed Baptist. Ron McKinney uh, was a pastor there in Dallas. Um, Ersinger, J uh, John Ersinger. And, and, John Ersinger, yeah. Yeah, and um, so I was influenced by those guys in the early 80s uh, before there were so many Reformed <laughs> Baptists. yes. Uh, most people didn't know what 1689 referred to. So, <laughs> so I was, I was still a uh, Calvinistic Baptist when I headed off to California. Um, I had been reading Van Til in high school and college and, and really wanted to, to get more Van Tilian presuppositionalism. And uh, he had just retired. So I decided to go to Westminster in California where John Frame was, because I knew that John was supposed to be the heir apparent of presuppositional. <laughs> and uh, I think I mentioned before to Mike that uh, when I was picked up at the airport, uh, I was taken to John's house and there was yeah. this, we went to the door for me to meet him. And it, it was a small new, new school. You know, I was in the second class, which was the first full faculty. And uh, we arrived at his door and there was beautiful, beautiful classical piano music inside and i thought well at least he has really good you know taste in music yeah never never did i dream the the music stopped and i thought well he turned it off and and uh, um when he opened the door and i walked in i saw the piano and then i realized <laughs> that john had been playing the piano so we sat down and we Amazing. talked and um i asked i asked john and alan winnie was the uh gentleman who had taken me there i, I asked than what their millennial positions were. And Alan said, well, he said, um, sometimes I'm a millennial, but sometimes I'm a premillennial. And we chuckled. And then I turned to John and asked John and uh, John said, well, I'm, I'm probably more amillennial, but uh, some days I'm postmillennial. Oh. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and we chuckled again. And, and I didn't realize how, how fortuitous that comment would be. Yeah. <laughs> I was about to say, yeah, totally. I could see so that. So then um, I started my classes that fall, and um, uh, Dr. Klein did not arrive on campus until the winter term. And uh, I had never heard of, of M.G. Klein at all, ever in my life. And um, he rocked my world um, more profoundly and deeper in my DNA than I can tell, explain to anyone. His son, uh, Meredith M. Klein, was teaching there, and I would get into these conversations with Meredith M. Klein. And one day, I remember, of course, I was uh, a very humble young chap. I said to him, I said, you know, your dad is amazing. He has almost all of it right. <laughs> anyway, anyway, his son soon sent me. He, his son is a very ironic uh, bird watcher, very, very 
very chilled kind of guy. And uh, I don't even remember the comment he made, but it really put me into a covenantal tailspin and uh, just really turned my world upside down. So, wow. so I would go to class with um, other students. And I remember one guy who was a Christian reform student and we would hear John frame and we'd be in class and um, we'd get out of the class and my friend would shake his head. Oh, that was awesome. That was so good. And I would be shaking my head. Ah, that's not it. That's, that's not right. <laughs> and then we would walk across the hall for our next class and would have a uh, climb. And um, after that class, I go, yes, yes. that's so <laughs> And my friend would go, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> wow. Very interesting. Very revealing. Yeah. Wow. So I um, had the opportunity to get uh, both of those uh, men in a smaller context, went to New Life Presbyterian Church, which is uh, a, a church where they both worshipped. Uh, John was one of the elders. And uh, Dr. Klein and his wife were there. Amazing. He would be in Gordon Conwell in the fall and then Westminster in California in the winter and in the spring. So we would see him. But if he taught, I was in the class. Yeah. And I still remember seeing him. Uh, his facility for the language was spellbinding. Of course, for a person who didn't know Hebrew, anything would have been spellbinding. But I mean, beyond that, um, I had his class on Zachariah. And um, every jot and tittle he wrote on the board is in my notes. I mean, I yeah. wrote as fast as I could. I never realized it was going to be published someday. Yes. But it was just, it was revealing. I mean, it was just so amazing and incredible. Yeah. And um, um, to our topic in terms of rewards in heaven and so forth. Yeah. When I was at First Baptist in junior high school, I had gone to a uh, missions trip up in Chicago uh, when I was in junior high school. And I still remember uh, one day I was in the church of this mission church where we were uh, doing our work. And I was in the next room from where the pastor was meeting with this woman who had had a very hard life. And I overheard him say to this woman, that uh, we're saved by grace, but our rewards are based on what we do. And when he said that, my gut just, I, it, something was intrinsically very, 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 very wrong. That was the first time I had ever heard such a concept. Yeah. And I, I didn't know exactly how to argue it, but I knew that it could not be true that that, that would undermine grace at a foundational level. And then uh, when I was at Baylor, uh, one of the uh, people from who taught at uh, Believer's Chapel would come down and teach us. And I remember one night on the on the blackboard, he wrote that we're saved by grace, but we're rewarded according to our works. And uh, this guy was an excellent teacher, and I had learned so much from him. But when he put that on the board, I just, again, I just went into a spiritual turmoil that that, that, that could not be right. And when I got to Westminster and Klein, um, was exposed to Klein and to his theology and so forth. Then I really started to understand theologically why it was doing such a number on me, that concept. So um, the book, the book really is standing on the shoulders of Klein. Yeah. You can tell in the first two thirds of the book in terms of the Pactum Salutis and the, the distinction between the Pactum Salutis and the covenant of grace. 
and of course the centrality of the two atoms. Mm. But yeah. but there's more Kleinian foundation <clears throat> in the book if you if you're aware of Klein and you read um, in terms of the centrality of the temple, the eschatological temple. Yeah, Definitely. yeah. Well, I mean, one of the one of the reasons I like the book, just uh, argument aside, is just it's a great, nice, accessible intro to Klein's work. We're always on the hunt for that sort of thing, you know. Just um, you know, because Klein is a little bit difficult to jump into right off the bat, uh, especially if you didn't have him as a, as a teacher and to kind of you know just jump right into Kingdom Prologue is always a bit of a, a nightmare for people. So yeah, just to have a few books that have spelled, you know, just just laid that bigger picture out um to recommend to people along with plant it's just always helpful and really good yeah. so definitely uh your book is on that list uh it's just a great i mean i have excellent summary right right up front i mean it was it was fantastic now just a quick question is it dr taylor no no it's okay. not jeff taylor yes so jeff just uh i've just wanted just following up on what you were saying there about your your what, what really impacted you i loved page 266 where you talk about the song that's all the lumber <laughs> um <laughs> it's just a, a perfect little little way to feel desperately uncomfortable with the whole notion of, of what your book's really trying to get at yeah and uh you, you you share there that a man comes to the gates of heaven peter takes the new arrival to the house he built during his life mm. the man is excited as they pass uh, by stone mansions but as they continue their houses keep getting smaller and smaller but they get to the man's heavenly abode and it's a two-room shack peter says he hopes the man is happy the man can't believe that that is all that there is. Then the chorus explains that the size of the house is based on the amount of lumber the man sent through his good works. Yeah. So uh... <laughs> it's now just before we jump into that though, can I just quickly ask one more kind of uh, what do you call this yeah. biographical question? I don't know. Um, yes. When you when you came across Meredith Klein, you said he kind of rocked your world. Was that like on lecture one, or did it take a few warm up lectures to get to that point? I think he got me very, very quickly. Um, he was because he he was such an exegete, and profoundly so. You know, when I got to uh, seminary, um, I heard professors quoting the Westminster Confession of Faith and larger catechism, shorter catechism. Mm. And as Reformed Baptist, that was kind of a turnoff to me. I was like, "Well, I, I, that's great, but I want the Bible, folks." Mm. I mean, that's that's where I was coming from, coming in as a Calvinist who was coming out of the background I'd coming out of. Mm. So when I got to Klein, there was none of the confessional fallback. Not that he was not deeply confessional and the, the, his whole churchman uh, life was certainly within that framework. Yeah. But that is not where he argued from. He didn't argue for what the church has always held, though it's certainly within the framework of a reformed understanding of the confessions. And Mark Carlberg has done an excellent job in yes. terms of asserting that. Yeah. But uh, here was a man who took the scripture um, in a in a exegetical way mm. that I had, and I had been exposed to Estlis Johnson, who's an exegete, and I yeah. had, and Criswell was not one who just threw around a topical verse. Right. But Klein was at a whole different level. Yeah, a different level than even the professors that I had had in the fall semester. I mean, interesting. Yeah, um, yeah. This was. It certainly feels that way when you read him. 
Yeah, I mean, exactly. You feel like yeah. you're being someone who's operating at a slightly different level. It's <laughs> other stuff that you do. I mean, it is. Yeah, it, it's, it's sort of like now time. that I have mastered Hebrew, I will consider what the Bible <laughs> right. says in Hebrew and then go on to, you know, it's just yeah. sort of like step one, step two. Yeah. Uh, it's, it, I've, I've got a kind of introductory question as well. It's not really getting it, but, but you know, in terms of the, in terms of the, um, it's just something that I'm always curious about is is how we kind of bring those things together. You know, tradition, the creeds, the confessions, the um, and then obviously while while giving the ultimate authority to to scripture, and and the, you know you, you acknowledge in the book that this is a minority position, this the, the view of of rewards in heaven, and so I'm just I'm just curious to know how much you know how. How did that affect you? How did that impact you? Did you, um, you know, realizing that you were taking a minority position on rewards, was this a struggle? Was it something you just thought, you know what, I'm going to follow the scriptures? No, excellent question. Um, I really hadn't heard a whole lot about it until the early experiences before seminary. And then when I got to seminary, I really didn't think about it a lot. Uh, because I was so absorbed in this whole new world, Voss yeah. and Pline, yeah. and biblical theology was a new, whole new way of approach scripture, anything I had ever heard before. Right. You know, the Dallas theological guys, their idea of biblical theology was, here's what John says about it, here's mm. what, <laughs> but the history of redemption story aspect really was new to me, um, and how essential and foundational that was. So. Um, but as I went into pastoral ministry, then of course, when you start preaching sermons, you're starting to be confronted with this question of the role of works in terms of sanctification, the role of works in glorification. And very quickly over those years of ministry, um, it became very, very obvious to me that it was a minority view. Um, but at that point I had already Theologically, my feet were firmly planted in a Kleinian perspective, and Klein did not hold. He never talked about it in class, to my recollection, but you just knew that that was not consistent with what he was teaching. Mm. The eschatology, when we think of glorification, often in evangelical circles, we think of glorification as a piece of the ordo salutis. We don't put it in the context of the eschatology, of mm. the Vossian <laughs> eschatology, and I think that that was a big piece for me. Mm. So it's not like I came to a point where I had to look at the confessions and look at the scripture and say, okay, what do I do here? Mm. I became aware more and more of the confessional standpoint. Um, I became a Presbyterian while I was in seminary. And so the confessional piece came after the theological convictions that rose out of my study with Klein. Mm. Yeah. I mean, you know, just hearing you um describe you know that that gut feeling that, that that you know you hear this kind of this is not i mean you're sold on this whole Kleinian rubric and justification by faith and and uh the, the two atoms and and um and then yeah you hear something like that it just doesn't feel right and i think even before we get to thinking about your argument in the book and um i 
you know, I think it's probably true that that a lot of people, even if they end up sort of disagreeing with you, would still be able to resonate with because there are some stories that you tell in the book, for example, Nick just quoted one, some some things that even if you kind of do hold to that view, I mean, that's got to get that's got to be enough to just get your hair standing up and getting you to move back and rethink something of it anyway, or, or just to just to figure you need a way to kind of square these these two differences. Well, everybody who's written on the topic acknowledges the problem yes yeah. exactly yeah 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 so it's it's at least um it's it's almost like when that's not acknowledged that then you're in a real danger zone when people are just running down that road and, and sort of yeah coming up with lumber stories and so forth uh, then you're <laughs> then you're in trouble um but but maybe just as a bridge to thinking about the book itself i mean you mentioned that uh this is coming out of your pastoral ministry kind of thing were you were you uh, what gave rise to the book what was there a story behind that or did you just decide one day actually i'm just gonna write this thing no uh, thank you that's a great question um you know the the Lord has been kind to me, and I've already you know told you about the the pastors I had, preachers I had in terms of my early experience, and then taking me to Westminster, uh, thinking I was going to get framed and getting a uh, Klein. Um, so the <laughs> Lord, the Lord, the Lord is merciful. It's <laughs> <laughs> so, so merciful. Lord, <laughs> I, I, I'll um, answer your question, but I'll give you a little anecdote that fits in it all. I think that the Lord really gave me a burden on this topic. And uh, throughout the years of pastoral ministry, more and more I became, and a lot of it was um, Tim Keller and his, the um, Lutheran understanding of justification, which I was exposed to. Um, And that combined with the uh, biblical theology, it was just, it was powerful, the, the two together. Yeah. yeah. And I saw the reaction of a lot of people in the Reformed community who didn't have the the freedom, and I do mean freedom, and the joy that comes from the gospel mm. as they were bringing in works, either in justification or bringing in, yes, Reformed people do that. They were yeah. bringing in works either in terms of justification or more often in terms of sanctification, they were trying to bring Moses back into sanctification, which is a no-no. And then without doubt, always when it got to the discussion of our eternal state and our rewards based on what we do, that was a killer. So um, I, I, through the years, as I studied, I accumulated, I mean, files and files and files of research on this topic. Right. And then a couple of years ago, maybe three years ago, um, the Lord just really put it on me. You know, that's great, but write it. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> and I was like, but it's so fun to research. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. And yeah. I mean, I, I would go, I would go to theological libraries, and I would see what everyone had to say on this passage. And I yes. mean, I I had done my research, and so I sat down to start to write, and. Um, I was going to interact with what everybody said. And I wrote the first two chapters and I thought, well, I should probably run this by somebody before I get too far in writing. And my oldest daughter um, is excellent in terms of literature. She had studied for a semester at at, uh, Oxford and done well. And I mean, she's very capable. So I sent it off to my daughter. I thought, you know, she'll, she'll tell me. And uh, she's daddy's girl though. (laughs) <laughs> and after she read it, 
she said, um, uh, dad, that's, that's good. But, um, maybe you could tell us what you think. <laughs> nice. And I mean, I knew what she meant when she said that, yeah, um, yeah. And I, the Lord made it very clear to me that I was not supposed to write the book I was going to write with these piles and piles and piles of interaction with this art, this theological article, this journal and all of that stuff. Right. And I really became convinced that I needed to write it the way I actually did write it. But it was a lot of work to write those first two chapters. And I did not uh, want to start with a, a blank piece of paper. It's hard <laughs> taking the blank piece of paper and just writing the first paragraph. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, um, I dragged my heels and uh, I'm not charismatic, but I'll tell you that um, things that God has done in my life has certainly stretched my comfort level because uh, when I dragged my heels, my computer broke, <laughs> but that wasn't a problem uh, because I had a copy. I had a backup copy. I'm smart enough. I had a backup copy, but I couldn't access the backup copy. <laughs> Oh wow! And I, and I worked for a couple of weeks trying to find a way to access the backup copy and I couldn't. So I bought a new computer. This is over a couple of months, you oh, know, I bought a new computer and I finally started to uh, write it the way that I knew that the Lord wanted me to write it. Nice. And, um, and then as soon as I had written the first two chapters, the way it was supposed to guess what I was able to access. Oh, no. <laughs> The original uh, okay yeah i was gonna i was gonna ask when, when did that happen <laughs> okay good it was kind of like okay lord i got it <laughs> yeah yeah you got the message at that point yeah oh man i've had similar experiences with sermons you know where you you sort of yeah, you're nearly done ready to go kind of ahead of the game that week feeling quite proud of yourself lose the sermon you know, and then spend, you know, you just, you just got to start again, you know, and, and yeah. you fight it yeah. for a while and then you wrestle and then, oh man, no, there's, there's a definite providence in that. Well, that's awesome. And um, in terms of the, um, the, the, the book itself, I mean, I think one of the, one of the most appealing things about it is that, well, I don't know, this was definitely one of my impressions. You open up and it is like, you know, you're saying, this is what, this is what I'm holding to. This is what I'm arguing for. This is it. Here we go. You know, and we're on the train immediately. And it is really refreshing to 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 read something like that and to just you know obviously you got you got Klein in the corner you can tell there um you know in those opening chapters but we're already fans of Klein, so that's not that's not a, a throw off for for any of us <clears throat> but then yeah you I mean you run with it um, and I I mean I would if I'm not mistaken uh in, in Kingdom Prologue Klein does pretty much make the case that you're making I mean very briefly um, you know, I wouldn't be able to refer to page numbers right now, but I remember something like that, reading it through a few times. Page, page 348. Oh, there we go. Yeah. He's interacting with dispensationalism. Yes. And there's a big paragraph where he does interact with it. Yes. That's the yeah. only place I know of right. in writing where he does. Interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, you're, you're not only following his trajectory of thought, but you're, you're holding to what I think would be his position as far as I, I can tell. Um, all right. Well, anyways, I know people listening to this would be like, okay, what exactly is Jeff's argument? What is the book about? Tell us already. And uh, we're doing this on purpose. This is part of our suspense plan. This is, uh, this is reeling you in. In fact, this um, is why we always do this. this and is what uh, we for always part do. two, you can go to our Patreon account. And if you deposit $10. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> if you can find it, that's, 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 that's right. Okay. 
So, Jeff, I mean, I don't know. I'm not, I told Jeff before, he doesn't have to prepare anything. This is not a prepared thing, you know, so, so I'm not asking for, for anything overly uh, crazy, but, but yeah, in a nutshell, I mean, what are you arguing for? Well, what's the, what's the big idea behind this book? What are you saying? Sure. Uh, Well, I think it would be a big mistake to get the book and just turn to a couple of passages in the last third of the book and say, what does he say about that? Right. Because you really would miss the argument. Yes. Uh, the, The argument really is, as the first third of the book develops, first of all, first chapter is, is that, um, creation, the heaven, which is invisible and the earth, which is visible, all of creation is all about God building his eschatological temple, his glory dwelling for eternity. And uh, the Lord is seating, seated as king in heaven, and Adam is created as the vassal king on earth to make the kingdom of heaven on earth. And he is in a covenant of works with the king in heaven. Hmm. And he has promised that if he fulfills his probation, that he'll be confirmed in righteousness, and that he and all whom he represent then will fill the earth, subdue it, And as priest kings, as actual temples themselves filled with the spirit, that they will uh, fill the earth as the kingdom of God, his holy kingdom, and that 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 will transform then upon completion so that heaven and earth are one place, one eschatological temple. Mm -hmm. And of course, Adam did not do what he should have done. Mm -hmm. But uh, the temple piece of this is not ancillary piece, the temple piece is central to the argument because mm-hmm. what Adam did not do in the covenant of the works, God had in eternity, the in a Trinitarian pactum salutis, which means pactum of salvation, mm-hmm. the father covenanted with the son. And there is no subordination between their father and the son and the Holy spirit in eternity, a big mistake that reformed people make no ontological subordination. Mm-hmm. Amen. brother. Amen. But the sign really part of your book that you drew that out. Cause I have wondered about that from time to time. Does, does this idea lead yes. to a kind of subordinationism? So yes. I really appreciated you dealing with that. Mm. So the son takes the role of the angel of the presence, even before the incarnation. Mm-hmm. And in the old Testament, he is the angel of the Lord who is, um, representative in the burning bush it's not the lord but it is the lord in the burning bush in exodus 3 and um what the first adam did not do then um god does through the pactum salutis the eternal covenant of works between the father and the son and the role of the holy spirit in that and so christ then in his ministerial role does take a subordinate role as the son of man and that is his favorite term he is the man who has come Mm. god became a man to do what man did not do so that now god through a covenant of works eternal covenant of works the pactum salutis does two things number one um, christ on the cross takes away the penalty or the judgment that we deserve under the covenant of works with adam But second of all, through his obedience, his active obedience, he merits the eschatological reward, the inheritance. He is the heir of all things. And so uh, as the Pax Salutis then takes away the problem and gives us what Adam should have given us, does more than what Adam because of of that. Mm. It is not the same covenant. Christ does not step into the old, into the Moses, into the uh, covenant of works and fulfill the covenant of works. It's a different covenant, different stipulations. Uh, It is a different covenant and it's made before the covenant of works with Adam. And so um, here's the bottom line point. 
the eschatological inheritance or reward is only offered to two men. Hmm. You got to let that sink in and, and yes. go deep. Yeah. The only way to the eschatological eternal glory is either through Adam's obedience, which we do not have, or through the second Adam's obedience, which we do have. Hmm. There is no <clears throat> other way to receive the eschatological blessing reward. Hmm. And all that is given to Christ is given to us through the new covenant. He is the servant in the pactum salutis, but he is the Lord in the new covenant. The pactum salutis is a covenant of works based on what he does. The new covenant is through faith, a covenant of grace, not based on what we do. And too often in reformed circles, people try to combine the pactum salutis and the covenant of grace and make them one covenant. And what they usually do is they turn Jesus just into a mediator and not into the meritorious second Adam head. And they also combine the works of the pactum salutis with the grace of the covenant of grace. And you get a mishmash, which is deadly. Yeah. So yeah. the argument then is, it's that um, the eschatological blessing is in Christ period. And then there's no, we are joint heirs. Uh, Romans 8, we're joint heirs. Um, as Patrick uh, 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 Brendroth uh, says, uh, you can't be a super joint heir. Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, what is there beyond being joint heirs with Christ? Right, right. So the, the second third of the book then really just shows how that plays out in terms of the covenant of grace from Adam after the fall um, up through Christ's ministry in the new covenant. And then the third part of the book then makes this thesis, which is the second point that really needs to sink in. And that is that the Bible never promises a reward. Yeah. Well, <laughs> could I read just the first paragraph in chapter eight? Cause I think it really yes. sort of summarizes your thesis. Well, so it's, it reads like this, the covenant blessing of the new covenants, the covenant blessings of the new covenant are received by the believer by grace through faith. All the blessings the believer receives were merited by the Lord Jesus under the terms of the pactum salutis. The singular source of all the blessings has been obfuscated by the use of reward in translating words in the Old and New Testament. There is an equivocation between the older meaning of reward, which is uh, representative of understanding Hebrew or Greek terms, and the current usage of the term. This has encouraged a bifurcation in which salvation is received by grace and additional rewards are granted according to the believer's works. There is no basis for this division in the term itself in Old or New Testament usage. Yeah, which page number was that again? That was 249. So I thought that sort of really yeah. summarized your, you know, what you were trying to say. And, and you can't, you can't uh, go tell people to that all those passages in the Bible are mistranslated when they use the word reward. That's kind of like when S. Lewis Johnson used to get up on a Sunday morning and say, well, the, the Greek actually says, but, but I haven't written a, a good <laughs> translation yet. And everybody would laugh. You, you know, to, to write a book and tell everybody, okay, scratch the reward because it's yeah. a bad translation. Nobody would buy that. Mm. But that is exactly the problem. Um, when you're wow. talking about mm. those terms in the Hebrew and the Greek, uh, they all have to do with covenant recompense. It's the wage that a soldier gets. It's the wage that you get after your 20 hours, uh, your uh, work, your two weeks, you go to pick up your paycheck. When you go pick up your paycheck, you're not asking for your reward. 
a reward is an add-on. It's an additional, you know, the ki- kindergartner who's good and maybe get a star because he's being rewarded for his good behavior. Mm. But when we think about covenant recompense, that's not the word we use, but that is the word that is translated all through the Bible for reward. Yeah, I, I did go ahead and check that out. <laughs> I, it was like a thunderbolt, you know, just reading that it, it was just uh whoa, you know, what the, how, how could this be such a, how can you make a statement like that? And actually, you know, is, is that, is that even, and there I go, you know, and I, I checked it all out. And it's, I mean, I think you're right. It's just 100% true. And um, I've got, I, I ha- uh, there was this highlight in, in uh, your book here from, from my side, uh, this is on page 257 must've been just after your one there, Nick. Uh, the Bible does not have a category for reward outside of the blessing offered in the covenant. The English translation equivocates on reward. The terms translated reward in both the Old and New Testament refer to payment or just recomp- recompense for work, work done. But the common meaning of reward causes the reader to import a meaning of an additional recompense or recognition beyond the covenant blessing of salvation and kingdom received by every believer. This common use meaning for reward is absent from the Bible. There was the thunderbolt for me. I mean, that is just totally crazy. That, that, that is a real game changer. You have to, for, so what I think, I mean, my, my, um, my conclusion there was just like, well, this is now, um, even if someone wants to disagree with you, they have, that's what they have to wrestle with right there. I mean, this is, you are now the gatekeeper on, on this point, you know, this is, they have to come through that in order to figure out what to do. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I, mean, if, I was talking yeah. to my wife this, this morning about it um, because I had, to, I, I had to read your book very, very quickly because I was in a tent for most of the nights. And so I didn't, didn't have a, a, lot of, um, a lot of light. We had one light which broke sort of on day three. So basically I had until the sun went down um, to, to do any kind of reading. But um, I was talking to my wife about it this morning and her response was, well, obviously, I don't know anything about, you know, the, the details, the arguments, but it does make sense. You know, so the, the moment you talk about it in, in this kind of paradigm, if you like, then it does just make sense. It's always been such a, a weird problem. Um, and then when you, if you can just view it from this perspective, then you suddenly think, oh, well, it does, it, it does make sense. But there are a lot of other people listening to this who I think are going to immediately have a whole bunch of texts yes, that are just yes. going to be flooding them right yeah. now. They're going to be thinking like, what about, what about, what about? And if I'm honest, I, I think this has been, because um, this has not been my, the, 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 the position that Klein and you are, have been arguing for has not been my position. Um, but I, it's not a position I've kind of put a massive amount of thought into or held to. I just thought yeah. plain reading of the texts. You know, uh, I don't see any reason to, yes, it's slightly awkward, but we're just going to have to live with that, that awkwardness. Um, But increasingly um, I've, I've noticed that that tension really does matter because it so often does lead to a kind of, um, a kind of a a, a sort of almost like a a Romanizing of the whole process of of salvation. This, This idea that actually, you know, I was talking to someone who's a, a, a who's still holding on to some of those kind of federal vision ideas as well, and it's that kind of idea that just it flows out of that. Because if the day of judgment becomes this thing where believers are being assessed according to their works, then it it can it can only eventually, if you're taking that seriously, it can only minimize 
the sense of I will be okay on on that day. I will well, and it's sort of you bring out in the book. It creates like a like a evangelical pseudo purgatory kind of thing, you know? Yeah, with, with uh, exactly with Stanley. And interestingly, and, and... I did read just this holiday. Um, I picked up from a charity shop. One of the things our family does when we're on holidays, we go to new towns and we go to all the different charity shops. I think they're called thrift shops in the in the states or whatever. But you know, you go and look at the secondhand book section. I picked up this this um this this little paperback evangelical book which is grappling with with the idea of death. And he he goes down that line. Actually, he he basically makes an evangelical argument for purgatory, based on right. that exact idea. Wow. Um, and so I was reading that, thinking, well, that again, that kind of makes sense if you go. Right. If you have this view of what the the judgment is going to look like and what your the role of your works in that judgment, then I can see how you would very easily <clears throat> go onto this way of thinking. And so he's he's saying, well, um, you know, we're not Roman Catholic in our view of purgatory, but there is a kind of a purgatory that evangelicals do believe in, and I think the sad reality is a lot of evangelicals do have a purgatory that they yeah. believe in, even if it's not the same as Rome. I have found myself gasping at the goodness of the good news reading your book. Yeah. I, I mentioned yeah. that it was, it was, I did not expect that. I really did. I thought that we were dealing with a theological issue. You know, again, I'm sort of some like, I'm, it's sort of put it on the shelf, you know, I'm just waiting for someone to sort it out for me and I hadn't really come at it properly, but yeah, here I am reading your book, just tracking through, you know, highly sort of cerebral arguments and, and uh, working through all the Greek and Hebrew. And, and next thing you know, I'm just like, almost disoriented because here i am supposed to be you know I, i'm supposed to know what the gospel is you know and feel its joy and and yet i, I just i just found myself wow i had actually this had actually mattered for me experientially existentially more than i had you know yeah. probably been aware of uh it, it was amazing yeah. just, just quickly while i'm talking just just a second thunderbolt just speaking about my experience here um this is page 290 to say that the basis of reward is different than the basis of condemnation does not accord with the common use of according to works for both. That's massive. The biblical usage does not allow a bifurcated meaning. Um, uh, pretty much what Nick was getting at a, a second ago, but I mean, that was just, uh, I mean, it, that's either true or it's not, you know, you've got to go and work with that and, and mm -hmm. figure out if that is actually the case. Uh, I'm convinced it is. So well, well, your argument is right there. Yeah. 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 I'd find, <clears throat> just to add my experience, I mean, I'm in the traditionalist camp and uh, I don't change my view slowly. So this is a book that I'm very grateful for. I'll, I'll digest it and reread every text and, uh, you know, bring this as a lens to say, you know, am I reading this correctly? But uh, what I really did enjoy was, you know, one of those immediate sort of knee jerk texts that you, you know, you call to mind to try and argue with, with, with your thesis. Yes. You know, you put those in their place pretty quickly. You know, whether oh, yeah. it's the, whether They're it's the Beatitudes, whether it's the Sermon on the Mount, and then yeah. you know, you bring up some of those really nice, surprising ones like the rich young ruler, and uh, you know, those those were really helpful. <clears throat> but you know, as I was wrestling through this, there was a question I had, and I'd love to put it to you now. And I guess because uh, I've I've probably I wouldn't I I. I'm not Federal Vision. I'm not New Perspective on Paul. I'm not a monocabinetalist. I'm, I'm, I'm none of those, you know, bogeymen that we, that we all agree are completely wrong. And uh, as I've thought about rewards, I guess I've always put it into the category of answered prayer. So if you think about uh, ourselves as Christians, you know, we've, uh, we've been given the duty and the responsibility to pray. 
And uh, think, you know, why are our prayers successful? Is it because we pray so hard? Is it because we pray so in accordance with perfect knowledge? Is it because we pray upon request? You know, when we have that impulse by the Holy Spirit, you know, we could we could make it meritorious. And, and we know it's none of those things. It's because I have been adopted. I've become a child of God. So there's a position from which I'm now bringing my prayer. There is the righteousness that I'm wrapped in. There's the, the person whose name I'm coming in, and it, I'm coming through a mediator to offer a prayer that gets an answer. And so every time I've thought about good works, I've sort of put it in the same framework. And I, I, I didn't hear you wrestle with that, that sort of nuance, and I, and I guess I would like to throw it out there and ask, you know, what would your thoughts be from your thesis engaging with that sort of distinction? Uh, tell tell me if this starts to get at what you're asking. Uh, there's two things that come to mind. One is I would say that our good works are the fruit of our faith, our, our the work of the Spirit in our life as His sons. Um, but the good works that we do do not merit and do not gain for us anything in terms of the eternal blessing. Yeah, so the, the merit, I mean, I, I know where you're going with that, and I can see the trajectory there, and the, that's that's not where I'm going. I think <clears throat> but the, the approach... Second, let me yeah, throw the, the second piece out of here. Yeah, you carry on. <clears throat> um, you know, I think that it's Paul who, who, when you're a pastor and you see people converted and you see them brought to faith and you know that they're on their way to be with the Lord and maybe even do their funeral... Uh, in in a biblical sense, they are your crown, they're your reward, right? And so somebody may argue, well, if you don't do that, then you're missing out on that. And there's certainly a sense in which you can argue that. But I think that if you put um, reward as we're using it exegetically, right. then we would say that the things that we receive and the things that we enjoy, and they are related to our walk of faith and our obedience in that broader sense. But as we walk with the Lord, the things that he brings into our life, which are manifestations of the kingdom of God today, or the work of the spirit, which is the kingdom of God today. Um, I think the key point for me is that we're not divvying those up. How many did you get? And how many did you not get? But we're talking about holistically, we get it all. Um, yes, you could speak of it in terms of you know, I, I, I'm going to get to heaven and know that John's there because I I had that uncomfortable moment where I talked to him at the bus stop. Um, but it's not some add-on. It's part of my experience with the kingdom as it exists eternally, holistically, which Christ brings ultimately, right? Yeah. And, and I completely agree with all that. I guess the, uh, the nuance, which I didn't see addressed, was the, the issue of if my prayers are not works— if I don't get an answer to prayer because it's, there's something in me, it's a work, it's merit, it's, it's purely because I'm adopted and it's in Christ. Why, why can't my good works function in the same way? Granted, all your uh, sharpening on, on the issue of the, the way in which the word reward should be used. Right. That's so I'm just, I'm, yeah. you know, uh, so, so let's, uh, let me give you all your arguments on, on the etymological front and just say, you know, let's, let's tighten up all our translations and let's, let's stop using it that way. But isn't there still something that could make my works more like answered prayer than rewards, where only on account of Christ, yet I'm an active agent? And I guess I was approaching it through the, the lens of agency. 
um, and not a meritorious agency, but just an appointed agency where God would, because of Christ, grant me an answer to prayer, but it was nothing meritorious on my part. Well, if you're not parsing it out, if you're not parsing it out as some kind of um, reward that you get that is different than what other people get in terms of the holistic eschatological blessing of the kingdom, right. and it's focused on that prayer and your participation in that eschatological reality, because you're an agent who is praying and you're tasting of the kingdom in that situation, yeah. I don't see a problem at all. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because it's sort of like I mean, you've you've got to the root of the issue again with that with that a matter of I mean, once you've solved that terminological issue, I mean, we're dealing here with um, with with there, there's only the category for what Christ earns and what he gets and what he gives to you, right? And then all of this other stuff. Firstly, I suppose you'd have to find a, a I mean, does the Bible teach that? You know, um, Nick, you know, because I mean, it's one thing to kind of you know, work it all out, but you'd have to find, I mean, cause, cause the, we normally use the, the texts that, that have now been taken away, I think, you know, to, to even come up with that idea to begin with, you know? So it's almost yeah. like we, we'd have to, yeah. why are we there is a parallel. That? There is a, there is a biblical parallel in that you do have with Jesus teaching on the Lord's prayer, you know, the instruction to go and pray in private where your father will see what you do in private and then reward you. So the kind of idea of linking prayer with reward is, is there but i'm yeah. but but i'm happy I, I mean i'm finding it like nick i I'm, I'm having to change my view on the fly here because i'm i'm running out of things to say in, in objection but i'm a i'm not an early adopter i take you know it takes me a while to change my view so i'm, I'm in that kind of transient phase um where i'm i'm sort of running out of uh, objections to make but <laughs> one of the one of the things that i'm thinking about quite a lot at the moment um because i just did my my masters where I was engaging a little bit with Klein, but a little bit with Michael Heiser um, as well. And some of the understanding about sons of God and about us judging the angels and about um, this, this kind of sense of hierarchy that, that there, there is a, yeah, we become sons of God in the sense that we, we occupy this divine hierarchy that was, was meant to be there. And I'm, so my question is, Okay, it, it, granting everything you're saying about a reward, that there aren't rewards based on the specific works that we do that get us an increased, or every blessing is ours in Christ. But how does that affect any notion of hierarchy in, in, the, in the kingdom or in the new creation? I, I, I mean, I know this is a random, uh, mm -hmm. you know, but, but I don't know if the you've thrones on the right and the left hand side. That's all yeah. That, well, that kind of thing. And just, just the, the whole shape of it, that seems to kind of work through the, uh, through the scriptures. And, and I'm wondering how far we can go with that. Is there a kind of hierarchy? Who are we, we judging and, um, and who are we ruling over? And perhaps this is coming back. Maybe you could say something about the parable of the talents or, or, or something like that. So anyway, I'll, I'll throw that to you. Well, this is, this is why I said temple is central to this whole thing. It's not just an ancillary point. And that is, is that, as Klein says, uh, God ontologically exists apart from creation, which is, of course, orthodox. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people don't realize that heaven was created. And in the Pactum Salutis, the father takes the throne as the king in heaven, the suzerain, and the son is the image of the, the presence. And the Holy Spirit indoxates the glory of God 
to make heaven the glory of God eternally. And so then in redemption, in the Old Testament, of course, you see the angel of the presence come as angel of the Lord and the, and the Holy Spirit come as the theophany, the glory cloud, the Shekinah that fills the temple, the tabernacle. And then, so the Trinity is involved all the way through the Old Testament in terms of redemption, bringing people to the ultimate. But the ultimate goal is this eschatological temple. And the Holy Spirit, then, the role of the Holy Spirit in heaven is the one who makes heaven filled with the glory of God. But I think that the way we think about the Holy Spirit as evangelicals or as even Reformed people, we, we just kind of grabbed the third person of the Trinity and throw him in the equation now in terms of the new covenant. And I think we really have to put the Holy Spirit's role in the context of the second Adam who now is enthroned as the vassal at the right hand of the suzerain. And the Holy Spirit now, um, um, Jesus as the second Adam, the son of man enthroned, and we legally in him is uh, clothed with the spirit of God's glory as the image of the king and the Amen. spirit's application of the work that Christ has done under the pactum in the ordo in our lives, the work of the spirit is the work of Christ as the enthroned king. Amen. So Peter says on Pentecost that when they see the work of the spirit, they're saying the testimony, the fact that Jesus is on the throne, right? Mm -hmm. And so then the Holy spirit is at work to cause us to, we're justified because we're the covenant keepers because he was the covenant keeper. We're sons because he's the son in the context of the pactum salutis applied to us. We are holy because we have the spirit that he is clothed with and the Holy spirit is making us to be transformed into the image of him, the image bearer of the King and the glorification ultimately then is entrance into the glory, the original glory of heaven where heaven and earth are one as the bride of the son of man. And when you talk about it in terms of us being not just sons of God, but us being the bride of the enthroned vassal son of man, and that vassal now sits enthroned as the enthroned vassal. He sits enthroned over the angelic heavenly court. He has authority over that angelic court. When he comes in judgment on judgment day, representing the king, he is the one who brings judgment as the king, and he brings his angels, not ontologically, but as the enthroned son of man, he brings his heavenly host that he has authority over. A man in heaven has authority over the angelic court. Mm. And, and we, we're his bride. <laughs> and we are his bride. So here's the hierarchy. We are... <laughs> And this, this should blow your mind. If it doesn't blow your mind, you need to wake up. <laughs> uh, we are one with our federal head in union. And that's why Paul doesn't know how to put it any other difference than says it's a mystery. Ephesians 5, the man and the woman, the union, they are one flesh is a picture. And we're not talking about some kind of ontological confusion between us as creatures and Christ as the second person of the Trinity. But we are talking at a most profound, deep level of our union with our Savior, who is the bridegroom, and we are the bride, and all that is his is ours. And 1 Corinthians 3, the temple passage, ends with it's all ours because it's all his, and it's all his because it's all the king's God. And so you're talking about the Father 
you're talking about the bride and the bridegroom over the angelic. Who do we judge? Judge is just another way of talking about sitting enthroned. Mm -hmm. There's no millennial people underneath us, no cities that we're ruling over. We sit enthroned in glory and we are the eschatological temple city, the, the city that comes down the new, we are that temple bride. There is no sun or moon because the glory of the Lord. We are luminous um, as Moses' face shone, as Stephen's face shone, as Jesus in the transfiguration shone. We, it's beyond our comprehension. We will be as he is when we, when he comes. And yes, there's no 15 minute video of what you did wrong. (laughs) In the twinkling, not a blink, but in the twinkling of an eye. So when you're talking then about us in the new covenant and the work of the spirit in us and through us and the evangelistic commission of the King, Jesus, the vassal King, you are saying the playing out of his accomplished work. And, and I just think that um, we could go a long way in terms of as a evangelical reform world and understanding that our experience, our life and our church and our missions and everything is in this context yes. of the son, a man who has received the kingdom and is coming again. Yeah. And you know, that I think is such a helpful kind of, not a, we were talking the other day about, you know, the way you can go down a little bit of a weird track with Heiser, you know, and Klein sort of provides a helpful corrective or, or pres- you know, conserving effect, I suppose, in, in terms of engaging with Heiser uh, because of precisely this. Also, the neo-Calvinist stuff, I think, is, um, you know, to see something, uh, you know, it sort of protects against an overly transformative um, or uh, transformational, at least, view uh, of what the church is doing now. And, and you know, so there's so many things that are so good about holding to that, not to mention, as I mentioned earlier, the 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 glory of the gospel. I mean, I mean, just hearing you talk. It's having that gasping effect again. I'm gasping. Amen. Just you know? keep going. Just keep going. <laughs> it, <laughs> it's just good news. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, no 15 minute video. Yeah. This is excellent. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mom would be longer. Mom would be longer. <laughs> I would definitely need at least half hour. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. They're going to have um, to replace the bulb on the projector. I think. Yeah. 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 No, it's it's really immense. I mean, and, you know, maybe just quickly, if I could interject to say there, there were so many things about the book that I think people should read. You know, again, question of, of rewards in heaven aside um there's so many things on the way you know that that you have to that you have to get and and you know it's 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 almost like that's the last thing that you have to deal with that that rewards in heaven piece you have to get all these other pieces on the board first um so for example you mentioned earlier the the nature of heaven as something created um that is yeah i mean you often hear about heaven being thought of as as a kind of you know, eternal, almost they describe heaven as if it's God, you know, and, um, and fail to see how that all works. Um, You talk about, I mean, again, we've touched on it now, like that, that, that protological eschatology, that eschatology in the garden that, that, that uh, you have to sort of have in mind in in light of the first Adam to see the glory of the second Adam. And um, you talk about uh, so many, there were so many things like that, even just little things I've got you highlighted, for example, that just help connect the dots and uh, this is stuff I'll recommend to, to people along the way. But but um, you say the heavens in verse one refer to the invisible part of creation. Um, in the geocentric account, earth includes all the creation normally visible to man, including the expanse above the earth. Colossians 1.16 uses the same language and then appositionally supplies its meaning. For by him, all things were created, both in the heavens 
and on earth, visible and invisible, where the thrones or dominions of rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Heavens is invisible and earth is visible. Just like a really straight line to connect those dots. I've always, I'd never seen it, you know, quite so clearly before. It was just brilliant. So I had thousands of those little moments in the book um, where, you know, I would I would recommend it for, for that reason anyway, you know, even if uh, people are not massively interested. And I, I think a, a clear and intelligible doctrine of indoxation is yes. really necessary right now. There's a Trinitarian revival going on yes. where we're re-exploring the eternal relations within the Godhead. Mm. And I think Klein has a unique contribution, mm. you know, because uh, we recognize that the incarnation is a, 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 an external act appropriate to the uh, eternal relation of the begottenness of the Son. And your question always is, well, what about the Holy Spirit? He's always the, it's, always the, it's the person of Trinity that always seems left out. Mm. And then just to see indoxation, you know, where uh, this, that that act of creation, the creating the temple of God, as a as a way of manifesting the eternal procession of the Spirit, mm. and um, just a uh, wow, just really deepening our, our appreciation of the Trinity. Love the way you dealt with the 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 fact that there's no sort of pre covenant of works covenant you know the the john frame thing this has actually come up for me quite a what does he call it the covenant of creation or something some sort of way to get out of the works grace contrast you know we've just got this whole big thing preserving uh the whole thing prior to the covenant of works and then uh we won't go into that now but yeah jeff just has a few moments in the book that really sort of punched that in the face and um it really really helpful uh, for anyone wrestling with those sorts of things um Coming back to the reward issue, though, I mean, and, and just working out your central thesis and this, this idea that, you know, there are no rewards as we think about them um, in heaven. There is, of course, the reward. Um, but, but you know, we, we talked about these texts and everyone's got these go-to passages that will surface and become a problem for them. Well, I mean, it would just be interesting from my side to, I mean, what was, was it all just a slam dunk for you up front? Or did you have a few texts that were actually you know, a bit of a struggle from your side as well that you had to really work on. First uh, Corinthians three, I think was the one that um, I knew that he couldn't be saying what everybody said he was saying. Right. Right. But what, 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 what is he saying? And um, again, again, the Lord has been kind because when I read Thucydides in college, I never real never realized <laughs> yeah. why I was reading as you do Thucydides. <laughs> but yes. um, every everyone, and I do mean everyone who's not Catholic, says that when Paul says that the uh, poor builder in First Corinthians three who built with wood hay and stubble that he is saved, but as through fire, everybody says that as through through fire that that's a idiom, a Hebrew idiom or a greek idiom for barely or by the skin of your teeth so the mm. idea is the guy's saved but i, I mean i've read commentaries and, and sermons and stuff where people have said yeah he's still singed of the smoke mm. and it smells of the smoke and still singed of the spire but he made it out you know yeah yeah and um it's interesting because when you start to go to the passages where through fire in the greek is a diapuros when you actually go through the passages there are no passages let me say that again there are no passages that i'm aware of in the bible and the septuagint during the new testament or in classical greek where diapuros is used as an idiom for barely or by the skin of your teeth or just you know just barely managed to get out mm. 
Um, but here's the thing that was really a shock to me when I started to dig into this is I never, you know, Klein is huge in terms of the Near Eastern studies, the Hittite treaties and the suzerainty treaties and all that. Hmm. It never, you know, I was, I studied Greek, but it never dawned on me that that covenant structure was foundational in Greece too. In my mind, there was this split from the ancient Near Eastern world in Greece. But as I argue in the book, why well, just a couple of references, um, scholars of Greece will tell you that covenant and the structure, the elements of covenant are the same as in the Near Eastern world. Wow, and when you then start to look at how Diaporos is used in those classical passages and in the like in the uh, Septuagint and the Old Testament, but in the classical passages, the covenant understanding of Diaporos makes all the sense in the world. Mm. And when you make a covenant, you take upon yourself this self-maledictory mm. oath, mm. circumcision being cut off, baptism, the water drowning. Um, but fire is huge. And so they would go through the fire. Literally, they would go through the, the fire as a picture of the judgment that should come upon them if they didn't keep the covenant. And so this picture of going through fire in covenant making then when Paul says that this person is saved, and then he uses the adverb um, of manner, which literally means in this way and in this way, through fire, he's telling you he's not saved in some eternal sense, but to go through the fire. That is, as is pictured in covenant making, he is going to go through the fire in terms of eternal judgment. I was encouraged when early on I realized that uh, Chrysostom in the early church who his mother tongue was Greece. Yeah, it was Greek that uh, Chrysostom also uh, understood that uh, Diaporos saved that saved was not a reference to eternal salvation, but saved was a reference to him not being annihilated like his works are annihilated. He himself is saved. And then in the book, of course, I argue that sozo doesn't always mean saved like mm, we think. So. Mm. And in uh, Jesus's words, unless the judgment were cut short in 70 AD, the people would not have continued to exist is how the NIV translates sozo there. Mm -hmm. But when you connect it then to Paul's world with Greece, I think that you really start to see that his through fire is really a reference to the covenantal picture, the reality of covenant making that the, this false teacher in contrast to the true teacher, the wisdom of the world versus the gospel mm. um, that the, the false teacher his work is all annihilated. He himself is not annihilated and he is continuing to exist, but in this way to go through the fire. Yeah. yeah. And here's kept, the kept in judgment of fire, basically. And here is the proof verse 16 and 17. He says, the one who destroys the temple, God will destroy hmm. yeah. and everyone. And I do mean fee. And I mean, all the scholars make a hard break at 15 and 16. It is not a hard break in 15 and 16. 16 is the reason for why he's just said that, that they go through the fire, because God's going to destroy the people who destroy yep. the temple. And they're destroying the temple through how they're building with the wisdom of the world. Yeah. And it is <clears throat> a strong contrast. And his use of the phrase, don't you know, when you look at the 10 times Paul uses, don't you know, it's always not to introduce a new topic but to say exactly what he just said with different words. And that's what he does in verse 16, 17, when he says, God's going to destroy him because he's destroying the temple. Don't you know? 
Yeah, I found your handling of 1 Corinthians 3 utterly compelling. Yeah, uh, I was. And it was and, impressive. And the context, because, your argument just cinched it for me. Yeah. Yes. And, and you know, you're, it's because you're asking us to change our view quite substantially on that verse. You know, it's just, and, and yeah, to be able to track with it and go, you know what? I don't know. That, that makes more sense. And, uh, you know, I can't fault it. Yeah. <laughs> it it's kind of where I, I came away from. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe other people have got some other ideas, but it was, it was impressive stuff. It was, a, it was fantastic. It was, it was exciting yeah. exegesis at that level, yeah, you know, definitely. So, you know, again, uh, even if someone's listening to this going, well, I don't know about that, blah, 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 you know, l- read the book because you read deal with book. it really carefully yeah. and, and look at it, look at what Jeff's saying there and, and, you know, bring it bring a counter argument if you must but but um you know uh, you'd have to read the book you have to look at it um in fact i remember telling nick that i was just like read the book you just make make sure you don't skip that part <laughs> you gotta read <laughs> gotta read all these all yeah. these uh exegesis yeah so that, that was fantastic um so jeff like in terms of you mentioned chrysostom i mean were there any um this being the minority position and all were there any interesting sort of um uh i don't know books or for anyone that does want to look at this further and has perhaps read your book uh what should they go to should they look at something else is there something else that has been super you gave a random quote from spurgeon who seemed to uh, be willing to be open to this issue it, it is really um a scarce in terms of resources to go to it's it's really tough you mm. know uh since the Reformation, people have been struggling with this, and everybody talks about the difficult problem. Uh, Orland's got 14 different views that he plays out. Well, um, yeah. I, I, people, people are just, they say this is this seems to be impossible, but of course it's biblical, so we got to hold it. And mm. um, I think that's where we need to, to stop and take another look. But um, there's a few articles that have been written. Um, some that are substantive. One, of course, is uh, Craig Blomberg in 92 did a great service to the evangelical world in his um, article in Jet's journal, yes, Evangelical. Yes. Yeah. So that that's a, certainly an article to look at, but he's okay. not coming from a Pactum Sluvis covenant right, standpoint right, or client right. at all, but yeah. he is. He's progressive dispensational, huh? I think so, yeah. 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 I sent him a copy of my book. I hope he'll, I hope he'll read it. <laughs> yeah okay but yeah that was helpful um that article just knowing i mean sometimes it just comes down to just knowing about a few key you know places that you can go and have a look and and um just process it from it, it may be even helpful that it's not exactly a client angle every time you know um but it's it almost feels like maybe the <laughs> the, the real literature to go and ponder over is is what people are saying if they don't deal with this, you know, uh, as you, as you point out in the book, you know, you've got, we've already mentioned the, the horror stories. Uh, I've just uh, glanced over um, this one. Uh, Charles Stanley goes so far as to say, this is in page 312, that the servant who has not been faithful is saved, but will be in the outer corridors of heaven, weeping and wailing at his loss of reward. It actually just like, Surely at some point you're going to catch yourself as you're saying that stuff. You Evangelical know? purgatory. Right. Yeah, like either you exactly. got to just flip over and go to Rome and just make it a, mm-hmm. just make it a thing and just jump over, you know, but it, it feels like as a Protestant who's in any way rejected all of that. Um, and it's, it's not just an evangelical purgatory because while he says that they don't stay in the outer corridors forever, weeping and, and gnashing of teeth, it is an eternal. You're saved. You're, I mean, I grew up, 
grew up in Dallas, Texas, and we'd go to Six Flags and you got one ticket and you rode everything. But we would go to my aunt's house out in California and go to Disney and you bought a ticket and you had coupons. And depending on how good your coupons, depends on what rides you got. And a lot of people have that view of heaven, you know, you're going to get just inside the door, but you're not going to, you're not going to really get what you could get yeah. and your eternity. Let this, this should not make you laugh. This should really make you cringe. Your eternity, the quality, the enjoyment, the blessing of what you get for eternity is based on what you do. Mm. Now there are people who try to pull back from that, like this and, and go to a capacity view well, what you get is based on your capacity. And so you won't really feel it that way because if you haven't done a lot, your capacity will be low and you'll get, you know, it'll be great for you, but it just won't be as great as it was for Billy Graham, right. whose capacity was far greater. Yeah. The problem with that is, is that the passages in scripture, like first Corinthians three, they don't, they don't tone it down to some kind of capacity. It is a stern warning. Hmm. Those passages are a, a stern warning of what you will be faced with in terms yes. of of a loss of reward, uh, yes. not just that you won't enjoy it as much because your capacity. Right. And that's yeah. the thing. I think you, the book keeps you from, cause yeah, we all, we all just like to figure it out and make it work in our minds, you know, whether we've got this capacity view or some other view. Um, but at the end of the day, you've got to, you've got to come back to what it's actually saying. And we've come up with these stories to help ourselves understand, but we didn't need to, to begin with, because, it, you know, the, the word is not used in that way. And I think that's just the big sort of X to the root and, uh, or sledgehammer to the argument, uh, or, or, or in any way you want to put it, but that's really what people have to, uh, mm. reckon with. That's what they have to really think through. Yeah. So work needs to be done in this area. Yeah, for sure. Um, man what a great book though jeff what a great book yeah absolutely fantastic no, that was it was it was enthralling and uh i'm not there yet i'm still wrestling but it was compelling it was yeah. exciting it was j just sitting and listening to you talking about you know us judging with christ as the bride of christ you know there's the, the book is full of those moments and it's it's just just a real pleasure to read mm, yeah absolutely. Truly. and it's yeah. i definitely want to go back and and have a look at it slowly you know yes. with your bible open Yes. And just really work through all of the examples because you give so many wonderful examples. You know, you engage with so many different texts mm. that you might bring to mind as an objection. Mm. And so I think I'm really keen to go through uh, through that because uh, it, it does have the potential to change quite a lot of our thinking on, on lots of different areas. And so <laughs> really? um, yeah. I feel like I feel like it's definitely one to spend time on. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. No, uh, it's one of those books for sure. Absolutely. So are you going to write another one, Jeff? Is this is there a. Is there something else on there <laughs> cooking in the background or? Well, you know, um, doing this really has um, put a deep conviction that the Pactum Salutis is much, much, much more important and central than we've thought. Yeah. And I, I, I've got books on my shelf that are arguing for the Pactum Salutis. And the argument goes kind of like this. Well, you know, there's these four verses that tell us that there's a Pactum Salutis. <laughs> But when you get into it, it's the yeah. Bible that talks about the Pactum Salutis. Uh, yeah. Blogging through Revelation and blogging through Hebrews in the last year or so, I realized that the Pactum Salutis is so central to mm -hmm. understanding. It is the topic of Revelation. It is central to the book of, of uh, Hebrews. And so um, a long-term project, uh, not that young, but a long-term project, I would love to see something uh, put in print to show how central the Pactum Salutis is. And the book does some of this, 
Yeah. But to show how central the Pactum Salutis is in New, Te- New Testament theology. Yeah. 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 That oh. sounds fantastic. Well, and then the website, let me just put that in front because you mentioned you were blogging through that. I mean, that's great. That's just, uh, there's a lot there already uh, for, yeah. for listeners to go and check out. Um and uh, I mean, yeah, uh, hopefully, hopefully people will just um, uh, think a little bit more about this. And um, and I'm sure we haven't talked about this for the last time. Uh, this has surfaced a few times over the yeah. over the years. Absolutely. And uh, we've always yeah. we've just been squelching it. We're like, wait, we, we don't know about Jeff's book yet. Now Jeff's book's on the table. Now we can exactly. talk about it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, all right. Well, thank you again, Jeff, for joining us. I mean, it's like uh, I, I wish that I could look that fresh at what would probably be around five, six in the morning. I, I still can't oh, believe yeah. that that's the time. If there. that's how you preach at four in the morning, I want to be in a, a sermon when you're at eight <laughs> in the morning. So. I just don't really, <laughs> don't really understand how that's possible. But um, yeah, it's been fantastic talking to you. And thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Um, we'll end it there. Anyone, you guys want to say anything more or is that it? Uh, so we're, we're, get uh, by the th- box. Thanks, Jeff. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you all. Right,